make sure you're writing a budget and your categories match who you actually are, not this made up version of who you are in your head. Even if it means that you're spending more on groceries than your friend, or you are spending more on takeout, make it realistic so that way you're not dealing with the shame or the frustration later on because you wrote a budget for the version of yourself that doesn't even exist. Allison Badgerly is the founder of Inspired Budget, a resource that helps women learn how to budget, pay off debt, and effectively manage their money. After paying off over $100,000 of debt with two teachers' salaries, Allison was inspired to help other women build lasting wealth. We hide from our debt because of what we're afraid it means about us. I saw my debt as this like terrible, awful thing that I wasn't even aware of, but had stuffed in this closet and it meant I was dumb or stupid and I didn't want to face it. I didn't face it until I was forced to. And so many people don't have that moment where they're forced to. And so you just have to sit in your feelings and then say, from this moment on though, my past doesn't define my future with money. I'm Erica Kohlberg, and you're listening to the Erica Taught Me podcast. Hi, it's Erica Kohlberg. And before we dive into today's podcast episode, I have an exciting announcement that can help you save an extra $1,000 without having to penny pinch or change your lifestyle. On Monday, I'm running my free five-day savings challenge, where you'll discover simple and creative ways that you can save extra money every month. And whatever you want to do with that extra money is up to you. I'll just show you how to save it. The challenge is totally free to join. All you need to do is go to erica.com slash go. Erica is with a K and you can secure your spot. By the way, these strategies that you're going to discover can help you easily save money, whether you're a budgeting novice or a finance expert, and they're going to get better and better throughout the week. But I have to tell you, I'm so excited about this and don't want you to miss out. In November of last year, we ran a savings challenge and had over 200,000 people sign up. And on average, people saved $1,005 that month through what they learned in the challenge. That means our challengers collectively saved over $200 million. So trust me when I say you don't want to miss out on this one. And the deadline to sign up to be part of this free challenge is Sunday, 11.59 p.m. Eastern Time. So make sure you secure your spot and get free access today. Again, that's erica.com slash go, E-R-I-K-A dot com slash go. See you inside. When did you feel like you had the worst relationship with your money? It's definitely when I was in college and I wasn't even aware. I, looking back, I know it was really bad. I love spending money. Like love it. I get this high I enjoy it. I don't enjoy saving as much. I do it now. <laughs> but in college, I had this newfound freedom of student loans sitting in my checking account. And I started spending money for my emotions. So I would spend money when I was happy, when I was sad, when I was mad, glad, bored. A boyfriend broke up with me, go get a pedicure. Got an A on a test, go out and buy something new from the mall. So I think that really, unfortunately, what happened is I was really using money to celebrate or cure any unhappiness in my life. And so overcoming that, well, first off, realizing it and being able to say, oh, gosh, I let it get to this point. And then overcoming that was difficult because it was years of this pattern I had. And was there a defining moment when you realized you had this pattern or did you gradually start to realize? 
There was a moment when I was dating my now husband, and we went into Ulta, and I spent money. I just said, I just need to get a couple things, and we walked out, and it was $200 later. And I was a teacher. He's a teacher. And he said, is this normal? Is this what you do? And it was just that one question, that one question that really wasn't hitting on shame from him or anything like that. It made me like open my eyes, right? It was like, like the clouds parted and I, I immediately was defensive. Mm-hmm. And I was like, it's my money. I can do what I want to do. And that immediate defensive reaction was like this red flag, the first red flag that was ever waved for me to see like, oh, this, I don't feel good when I think about it like that. I don't feel good with how I'm spending money. And then after you saw that red flag, was it just immediate? You changed your habits? No, that would, in like a perfect story, right? <laughs> with like a perfect ending, that's what would happen, but it wasn't. It wasn't until actually years later, I, I was aware and I was very careful. I would spend enough money to where I never went negative in my checking account. So I was tracking my spending and I was aware but still spending money based off of emotions and just when I wanted to. It wasn't until I got married and unexpectedly pregnant on my honeymoon at the age of 24 that I had this moment in time where I was like, okay, something really has to change because life has thrown us a beautiful, wonderful curveball that we need to deal with. And what did you do then? So that's whenever I first decided to write a budget. So I got married at 24, I got, yes, I got married at 24, pregnant at 24, and had a baby all at the age of 24. So it was a lot, but we sat down and we realized my husband and I were sitting at this really crappy hand-me-down kitchen table that was my parents with these mismatched Ikea chairs. And we totaled up our expenses and we realized we did not have enough money left over every month as two teachers who were paying off debt to actually afford daycare when our son came, much less for me to leave my job. There was no option for that. And so that's the moment whenever I said, okay, something has to change and we have to write a budget and try to pay off some of this debt. So for us, it was all about a cash flow problem. How can we free up $900 a month in the next really year by the time the baby comes and goes to daycare? And I decided, okay, we will do this budgeting thing and we will do this, but only, only for this short period of time because I don't want this control. I don't want something trying to tell me what I need to do with my money. I didn't like that idea. But then during the process, I found like freedom in my budget. And I think that that freedom gave me more power that I never had with money. That power I was trying to spend money and deal with those emotions, I actually got it by writing a budget and paying off debt and freeing up that money for us. I remember the same thing happened to me where I had just graduated from law school with $200,000 of debt. I don't even think I had ever had a budget in my life before. And I kind of thought the budget sounds awful. It sounds scary. It sounds like I would be trapped, but it really did give me control over my finances. And for so many years, it was easier for me to turn a blind eye and not look at them. I was more afraid of seeing what was actually happening. And therefore, I just did not want to see it. And I think my relationship with money completely changed once I got that budget and started to see, okay, 
this is what's happening. But guess what? I have complete control over it. That's a surprise for so many people. And it was for myself because I remember thinking this budget is a consequence. It is my punishment for my past choices. And I went into it like that, right? But I felt like I have no other choice. What else am I going to do? And during that process, I was like, wait a minute, it's not a punishment. It actually brought me peace and calm and a connection. And, and it helped our marriage in terms of no longer arguing about money or being able to be on the same page. And I was like, wait a minute, this whole time I thought it was a punishment. I thought it was a consequence, but it was actually like this thing that gave me freedom. It didn't take away, it added to mm -hmm. my experience in my life. That budget tracker that I was telling you about, we actually offer it now as the magic budgeting system. And one of my followers named Taylor says that it is now her hobby to budget. Oh. And I never thought I would hear those two words in one sentence. <laughs> no, it's so true because it's just, think of like whenever you learn something new and you just want to do it or you find a new book series that you're really interested in and you just want to binge it. That's exactly how I was. I used to, and I don't, I almost don't want to admit this because it feels really silly. I used to like pre-write budgets in advance to like see how close I could get to the actual budget whenever the time was coming up for me <laughs> to write the budget because it, it gave me that sense of peace. Did you and your husband have debt at that time when the baby was coming? Yes, we had $111,000 of debt. From combined, school? From school and cars. So that was also the first time we sat down and totaled up our debt. We had never done that. I think we had done it separately, but never together. And that's and our minimum debt payments were over $1,400 a month. That does not include a mortgage. And we were bringing home probably about $85,000 a year. And during that entire time, our income never, probably never got past $100,000. We did intentionally move school districts so we could make more money at one point, just higher paying position, same position, just higher paid. But we did it and with two kids in daycare. So we ended up having our son and then getting pregnant again and having another one. And anyone with kids in daycare knows it is ridiculous, the amount of money. So we did it all. And the original plan was, hey, we're going to write a budget. We're going to pay off this debt until we're debt free. And then we throw it all out the window and we live life like we would before. That was the whole plan. But obviously that's not what no. happened. No, and you know what? This was a four and a half year journey. I think that you can go onto all of these websites, all of these news articles, and you see couple pays off $100,000 in 10 months or five months. That's not, that was not our reality. And I think that that's why this story resonates with so many people because it was four and a half years four and a half years. And I'm not going to lie. There were times I wanted to give up. There were times my husband wanted to give up. There were times we slowed down or we paused for certain situations. But living in that season of sacrifice, and let me tell you, it wasn't even, it didn't even feel like sacrifice at times. But living in that season of sacrifice and determination allows us to live in abundance now forever. So we had this four and a half years of focus and sacrifice. And now we can say yes to so many things 
forever. And I think a lot of personal finance is psychological. Mm -hmm. And there was something there that you said where you felt like it was only going to be for a short period of time. Yes. And that's what got you to agree to even start it. Yes. And for me, for a lot of people I speak to, it's the same thing. If you feel like this is the rest of my life, Hush. no one wants to start that. No one wants to start a budget for the rest of your life. But yeah. if you start it for let's say six months, mm -hmm. then that six months can turn into 12 months and that 12 months can turn into two years until you realize like that is very empowering to have. It became a habit, truly. It became a habit and a part of me. I like to think of it as when I first started, I was like, I have to write a budget. I have to write a budget. I have to pay off debt. And it slowly changed into, it's not that I have to write a budget, it's that I'm a budgeter. It became a part of my identity and that's not a bad thing. So many things we can identify when it comes to hobbies and everything like that. And our children, our families, our hobbies, our interests. Why not our money? Why not managing our money well? Why not making some interesting or sometimes tough decisions when it comes to paying off debt so that you can do different things later on down the road? Yeah. What were some of those low points where you felt like, I'm going to give up? Oh, my gosh. So I was a teacher for 10 years. And my husband was a teacher. And during the summers, we would trade off teaching summer school to just make a little bit of extra money to send to debt or pay for medical bills, things that come up. And there was a period of time in the summer when he was done with summer school. And I wanted to go to the beach so bad. I was on Instagram. And this is before Instagram. Like, everyone was putting all their information on Instagram and they're traveling. I was seeing all of my friends who are young, I'm here with my baby, going to the beach, doing all these things. And I thought, I just want to go to the beach. Like, I want a beach vacation. We can go for four nights. I did the math. I found an Airbnb. I was like, okay, I'm going to go to my husband, Matt, and I'm going to say, this is the plan. We need this. We deserve this. Now, we had not planned on it. I was ready to go, like, next week. I figured out that we could drain our entire emergency fund and— do this beach vacation. And I went to him and I was like, I think we, like, this is a wonderful idea. Here's why. Let's do it. And I'm so thankful that in that moment, in my moment of really dealing with comparison and wanting something and then also not planning for it, not having that forward thinking to plan for it, he was able to kind of be very realistic and say, look, that's, Number one, not wise for us to drain our savings. I know you want this. What's something we can do instead? Can we go to the nearby lake? What if we have like a full pool day? What can we do instead? Because that's just not wise. And so whenever I had moments where I was done, he would be strong. And whenever he had moments when he was like, oh, this is not worth it, I could be there to be strong. When people come to you now and say, how do I get started with budgeting? What is the step-by-step plan or framework that you give them? That's a great question. So I definitely think that budgeting is very personal. It's very unique. What works for me might not work for you, but it all comes down to, honestly, though, knowing the money coming in versus the money coming out. So no matter how you're paid, I recommend budgeting per paycheck. So first starting out by, and, and I have these fun handwriting videos. I don't know if you've ever seen them, but I like a physical calendar, writing out just when are all of my bills coming out, and then when am I getting paid? When does that money come into my account? And being able to write a budget for each paycheck. Because I know when I started, I assumed, and many people do, 
I'm going to write a budget from January 1st until the end of the month. And I'll start a new budget on February 1st, which makes sense in theory, but that's not the best way to go about it because not everyone is paid on January 1st. So instead, write a budget from payday until the day before your next payday. So it's really easy to do that when you visually lay out your expenses, especially your bills, on a calendar. So then you can see, okay, what do I need to do? What do I need to include in my budget? And then for anyone who is paid maybe weekly or biweekly, do I need to set aside any money from this paycheck to help cover bills for the next paycheck? Because if you have your rent payment come out of one paycheck, sometimes you're like, oh my gosh, I have nothing left. And that's where people start getting into that credit card usage, using the credit cards, relying on them. So I would say definitely lay out your bills, understand when your money is coming in versus going out, write a budget per paycheck, and then give yourself time. No budget is perfect. I have never written a budget that I was able to stick to 100% of the time. That's not life. We can't foresee every single thing that happens. So when that does happen, what I used to do is I would throw the budget away and I would say, nope, okay, I guess it didn't work. I'll start over on my next payday. And the remaining days would be a free-for-all, which I loved. Like I was like, this is awesome. I have no guilt. I can spend all this money on whatever I want. So instead, after doing that a couple of times, I now do a mini budget. Even if I just grab a sticky note and I say, okay, I have five days left until payday. Here's how much money I have in my account. What do I need? What's coming out? What expenses do I need to pay? And sticking that on even my refrigerator at home. So that's exactly like the framework that I would give. Know when your bills are coming in and out, write a budget per paycheck, and be willing to go back and make changes to it as needed. Don't just throw it out and say, I'll start over next month. And that's step two, when you're saying write a budget, let's expand on that more. Okay. Okay. I love it. So basically your budget is your income, however much money you have minus your expenses. And I like to break up, when I write my budget, I break it up into our fixed expenses, variable expenses, and I combine debt and savings. So fixed expenses are going to stay the same every single month. Think car insurance, your rent or your mortgage, your internet, nothing that's going to catch you by surprise, right? Like, you're not going to be shocked or you're never going to want to pay more on something like your rent. You're typically not going to do that. So they stay the same every single month. And your variable expenses, they're going to change depending on what you have going on in your life. So if my kid gets invited to a birthday party, I need to make sure I include a $20 or $25 for a birthday gift or however much I want. Your electricity, it's going to change based off of your usage. These are the ones that tend to throw us for a loop and where we go overboard and we overspend. So what I like to recommend for people, because you're never going to overestimate or underestimate on the fixed expenses, spend a majority of your time looking at those variable expenses. Because the very first budget I ever wrote, we had this, we, we wrote it for the person, the version of ourselves we thought we were. <laughs> not, have you ever done that? Not, yes. Not the version of ourselves of who we actually were. In fact, my husband, our very first budget he said, we were writing out, how much are we going to spend on groceries? And this was for a month because we were doing it from the first of the month. We were doing it wrong, but that's okay. Or not right for us, I guess I should say. And my husband, Matt, I said, how much do we want to budget for restaurants? And he said, 
$5 (laughs) for a month. I said, what? And mind you, we had been going out to eat like maybe twice a week. And he said, $5. And I was like, why? What do you mean? And he said, well, you know, like we could go to McDonald's and we can each get something off the dollar menu. Like we'll do that once a month. And I was like, oh my gosh. But in my mind, I'm like, I mean, I guess it makes sense. Like the version of me I think I am cooks dinner every night, right? Like that's who I am now. And so we did that. And within three days, I was like, this was ridiculous. This was so stupid. So make sure you're writing a budget and your categories match who you actually are, not this made up version of who you are in your head. And so even if it means that you're spending more on groceries than your friend or you are spending more on takeout, Make it realistic so that way you're not dealing with the shame or the frustration later on because you wrote a budget for the version of yourself that doesn't even exist. If you've listened to some recent episodes of this podcast, you'll have heard me talk about Hostinger and their incredibly easy to use website creation services. I actually did a walkthrough to set up a website and it took me less than five minutes. So right now I'm going to take you through the basic steps and I highly recommend you give Hostinger a try, whether you're looking to start a side hustle and need a website, or you want to find a way to stand out in the job market with an online CV, They've got you covered. Start by going to hostinger.com slash Erica10 and selecting your preferred package. I recommend the 12 month as you get the best deal. You go to payment and this is where you add code Erica10, E-R-I-K-A 10 for a great deal. Once you're logged in, you can claim your free domain if you want. I'm going straight to the AI builder. Enter your brand name, what type of website you're creating, and this is the important bit. Describe your site in a few keywords and be as descriptive as you can. Click Create Website and Hostinger's AI will generate everything your site needs. Header, footer, contact form, images, social icons. If there's anything you don't like or need, you can then use their drag and drop feature to customize the website to your liking. You can even use their AI writer to generate SEO-friendly copy. That's not all. Your website also includes an e-commerce solution, so you're ready to start selling whenever you want to. Plus, you've got access to 24-7 customer support if you need it. So if you want to take your side hustle to the next level or simply build an online presence to supercharge your career, you can head to hostinger.com slash Erica10 and get an extra 10% off with code Erica10. That's hostinger.com slash Erica10. Erica is always with a K. I'll put the link in the show notes. Now back to the episode. What's so funny is when you first mentioned that, immediately in my mind, I was thinking, yeah, I remember when my eating out budget was so low that it was just not realistic. Yes. Because things happen too with eating out. You get invited out to lunch with coworkers. And exactly. It's sometimes hard to say no. Exactly. Also, another thing I always include in those variable expenses is a buffer, which is just a catch-all category. So if you do go out to eat with friends unexpectedly on a Friday for a long lunch— that can kind of catch any of those unexpected expenses. That way you're not so stressed and you're having this internal battle. Can I do this? Should I not do this? I didn't plan for this. Having just a buffer, literally, I just write the word buffer in my budget. And I usually do $100 to $200 for each pay period. 
because I know things are going to come up and it just acts as your catch-all and it's like a game changer for your budget. Yeah, and I think that's smart too because a lot of people, one thing goes wrong or they make a mistake with one category and then they say, budgeting isn't for me. I'm not going to do it. I have to quit. But if you allow that buffer and give yourself grace, budgeting is not going to be perfect from the beginning. You're going to have to iterate a bunch of times to get it right. You're going to be a lot more successful with it. Exactly. It's like, why do pencils have erasers? Because people don't expect you to be perfect when you're writing. <laughs> why does whiteout exist? No one's going to have a perfect budget and your buffer is, I don't know, your your eraser on your pencil. I love it. That's such a teacher <laughs> example for you to provide. I, and I was. I was a teacher for 10 years, an elementary school teacher. So that is very fitting. So you start budgeting and then four and a half years later, you're able to pay off all of your debt. Mm -hmm. What is your advice for people who want to get out of debt? You have to face the numbers. I think the first thing is we hide from our debt because of what we're afraid it means about us. I don't know about you, but for me, I saw my debt as this like terrible, awful thing that I wasn't even aware of, but had stuffed in this closet and it meant I was dumb or stupid or completely unaware, irresponsible. And I didn't want to face it. I didn't face it until I was forced to. And so many people don't have that moment where they're forced to. And so you just have to lay it all out there and say, okay, this is how much debt I have. I need to create a plan moving forward. And I can't spend my time focusing on my past choices because that doesn't help you at all. It doesn't help you to dwell in or sit in any shame and guilt. You can do that for a day, right? Let, like sit in your feelings and then say, from this moment on though, my past doesn't define my future with money. And so I need to own it, figure out how much debt I have, and then make a plan going forward. Because I remember when I was looking at our debt, it was $111,108.19 to be exact. And I felt like I was standing at the bottom of this mountain and I had to climb to the top and I had no path to follow or REI store to swing by in advance, right? I felt so overwhelmed. But by making a plan, we can take what feels very overwhelming, what feels just impossible and break it up into smaller steps. And so when we can do that, when you have that plan and you have the debt payoff order, whichever way you decide to go, whether you do a debt snowball, debt avalanche, what I like to call the DIY debt method, whatever you do, breaking it down into a plan allows you to focus on one task, one thing, and to meet that goal, have a little celebration, move on to the next thing. And it just makes it seem more doable. And something you said there where... Getting past the negative emotions that you've associated with debt, the shame, the fear, the disappointment is such an important first step. And I have this exercise that I think is good for everyone where write down your biggest shames, your biggest fears about money, and then rip them up. Yeah. Or talk about it with someone. You know what I'll do is I'm, I'm very much the emotional person in my relationship with my husband. He's very realistic. He's he doesn't have high highs and he doesn't have low lows. And sometimes, especially when it comes to big important things in life, like money, I can think something 
and I'll believe it, but it's not actually true. So our thoughts aren't always true. So another thing that I will do is I'll go to him and I'll say, hey, I'm having this thought. I just need help from someone who's a little more realistic and can help me think through this thought to explain why it is or is not true and to find evidence. So when you can do that as well, like, oh, this shame, you know, having this debt means that I am dumb or stupid, right? Well, no, you're not dumb or stupid. You went to a certain amount of school. You made it all the way through high school or you have a job. They wouldn't hire you if you were dumb or stupid. And so being able to counteract those shame feelings allows you to say that I did the best I could with what I knew at the time. And from this moment on, I'm going to intentionally seek out information by listening to a podcast, reading a book, watching a YouTube channel, doing whatever you need to do to gather more information so that way we can change the way we think about money. You mentioned earlier the debt snowball versus debt avalanche method for paying off debt. What did you personally use? And then can you explain to the audience simply what those are? Exactly. So I actually did something a little bit different. My husband and I, we had this... (laughs) We had this time crunch. We had to free up enough money to be able to pay for daycare. So what we did was we actually paid off our highest minimum payment, lowest balance first. So we looked at really like our highest minimum payment loans where that monthly payment was $300 versus $100. And we said, okay, can we pay off this minimum payment, this loan first, and then move on to the next one just to free up the cash flow every month. Because the last thing we wanted to do whenever our son was born and we did have those daycare expenses was to rely on credit cards to buy groceries and get gas. So we went out of order. We didn't take into account interest rates for that. And we were very specific. But the debt snowball method also doesn't take into consideration interest rates it is very much what I like to think of as like um, the motivation, the motivation method where you list out your debts in order from the smallest balance to the largest balance. You do not take interest rates into consideration and you pay them off. And that gives you those quick wins. You feel motivated because you're like, oh my gosh, like this feels hard, but I did, I paid off my first loan. And that gives you that energy to keep going. Whereas the debt avalanche method, it takes into account interest rates because interest rates, they are like, especially credit card interest rates are soul sucking. That's what I like to think of them as. It's just like so hard to get ahead whenever the interest rates are so high. With that knowledge, it's about taking your highest interest rate debts and paying those off first to save money overall during the entire process. Is there something you wish you would have learned when you were first starting to pay off your debt that would have accelerated that path a bit more? No, I wish I would have learned that it's okay to invest while I was paying off debt. That's what I wish I had learned. We had the motivation. We were willing to do little side things to earn extra income. We were in a field where you're really making more money as a teacher when it's a set salary scale and you don't necessarily want to go into administration is hard. So we had found ways to increase our income. We were motivated for the debt. For me, looking back, it was about, I wish we had invested, even if it was just a little bit while we were paying off debt, particularly because none of our debts were credit cards. 
So we didn't have any super high interest rates, debts. When you're hiring, it feels amazing to finally close out a job search. But what if you could get rid of the search and just match? You can with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. They are your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. But Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash Erica. Just go to indeed.com slash Erica right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Erica. Erica is always with a K. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I'll put the link in the show notes. Hey, it's Erica. I'm so excited to bring up a very important and personal project that I've been working on. I created my new site, erica.com, to help guide you on key financial topics like investments, credit cards, retirement planning, and more. In this episode, Allison and I talk about budgeting with your partner, but our conversation today is just the start. Head to erica.com slash couples to read my full guide on how to talk about budgeting with your partner. Find out how you should split your finances, whether you're heading down the aisle soon, newly married, or simply looking to review your financial strategy and get on the same page with your partner. I've gotten feedback that people want to dig even deeper into the conversations that I have with my guests on the Erica Taught Me podcast. So erica.com is designed to do just that. Whether you want to learn more about budgeting or investing, travel hacking, my favorite credit cards, or buying your first house, it's all on erica.com. And it's a completely free resource. My gift to show you that I'm committed to continuing to help you with your financial journey. So check out erica.com slash couples to become more confident in your journey to a better future. I'm super excited to hear what you think about the site. For the full article, I'll put the link in the show notes. It's erica.com slash couples. Erica is E-R-I-K-A dot com. Let's get back to my conversation with Allison. My answer is the same too. I had $200,000 of debt out of law school. And I remember... Googling, should I pay off my debt first or should I invest? And I ultimately decided to pay off my debt first. Mm -hmm. But the truth is, it's not mutually exclusive. Mm -hmm. You can do both. You can pay off your debt while investing. Mm -hmm. And I think I got almost too laser focused on paying off debt that I didn't care about anything else. I didn't care about investing. And really, the financially optimal way is to think, if your debt, if the interest rate is higher than 7%, probably better to pay off the debt first. If your interest rate is lower than 7%, probably better to do both at the same time. Invest while paying off your debt. You know why I think so many people don't do it, like you and me and millions of others? It's because when we start the debt payoff process, it feels very overwhelming. And you're like, oh my gosh, I need to do this. And now I also need to invest. You're adding another thing in. You're adding another layer in. 
And when you're just learning about it, it feels like like you just told me to take, you know, a physics class and I had I all I've taken is, you know, up to fifth grade science or something. Like it feels very overwhelming and daunting. We know now that it doesn't have to be that way. It can be very easy and simple and streamlined. But I think just like as people being able to wrap our mind around so much change and change whenever it can feel risky, I think that that's why. So looking back, I wish I had done it differently. I know why I didn't. And now I'm like super focused because I'm like, oh, we have time. We have time. We got to make up for some lost time. You're super focused on the investing? Yes. I mean, I, I'm i not going to lie to you. Like, I don't, I love spending money. I love it. I get like this high, like I, I just get that adrenaline rush from spending money. I don't get that from investing, but I get the adrenaline rush about, <laughs> about thinking about how I'm going to spend my money whenever we are retired. I love that. So that's what I do. That's how I'm like, okay, I'm ready to invest because I'm already forward thinking about like, well, my husband can retire at 52 with a pension. And then how do we make sure that all of our investments help supplement that? And what are we going to do? And so I'm already future spending money. I'm already spending my money in the future. And I'm like, okay, I'm investing now because that's what I'm going to do later on. When you think about your habits around money, like your love of spending, what habits do you think you want to break and what habits do you think are okay to have? Oh my gosh, this is wonderful. So one habit I would like to break, and it's so interesting because I see it in my 11-year-old son. I will go into these spending seasons where I have issues with spending, especially on our credit card. I love my credit card. I love my travel rewards. We pay off our credit card in full every month. I've never kept a balance on it. And we use it. We don't use it for every expense. But there are certain times of the year, typically around the holidays, when I'm just spending more money, even though I've planned, right? I set up a sinking fund, saving for Christmas. But the act of purchasing things online, going in person— I, become, I feel this like addiction. I feel this pull. And it's really hard for me to say no. So I start buying things for myself and I start justifying it because I'm already in this spending season. And my husband and I have talked about how to deal with this because even if I'm not putting so much money on the credit card that I'm not able to pay it off, it's impacting our savings rate, our goals. Mm-hmm. So one of my things is being able to internally like recognize, hey, it's coming. Like this is coming. I'm going to be tempted to do this. And being able to talk through in my mind or journal so that way I don't fall into those habits. I know I'm going to fall into them to an extent, but how do I create boundaries so that way I don't mess it all up and I don't go so overboard that I I don't want to pull back? Because then I feel like I've lost a sense of control and I don't like that. Something that I created for myself that I have stuck to for years is the seven-day rule, where mm-hmm. if I want to buy something, I wait seven days to actually buy it. If after the end of the seven days, I still want it, I go ahead and buy it. Yeah. But a lot of times what I've found is that it was really an impulse purchase. And seven days later, I don't even remember what it was that I wanted to buy. Yeah. And I think just taking a step back from impulse purchases is really helpful for people because 
the world is too convenient now. It is yes. too convenient to go online, enter your credit card, or maybe your credit card information is already, already saved. There. So as a, with a <laughs> click of a button, you can spend. And I think we need to create a barrier again between ourselves and that impulse shopping. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I even do it with my children. I can see it in my son, his like love of spending money. And he's always coming up with things he wants to spend. So the other day I was like, okay, pull out your phone. He was like, what, what, what are we going to do? We got to get something on Amazon. I'm like, no, pull out your phone. I said, you need to just write down Evan's wish list. And so I'm like, here, you're going to grab the links and you're going to put them here. And it's just the act of setting that information aside. It's like closing a loop in your mind. Instead of him thinking, I want this, I want this, I want this, we've closed that loop. And he's like, I know I want this. I have a space now where it sits. And I have my own wish list and I share it with my husband in case he ever wants to buy me something. (laughs) (laughs) What's on your wish list? Oh my gosh, just different things. Like I have a diffuser for my house. I have earrings, just something that's simple and nice that I'm like, I could go out and buy this right now, but it wasn't planned. And so I just have this wish list that when I come across something I like, I put it in this notes app. He has access to it if he ever wants to treat, you know, buy me a gift he can. I have a wish list for him. If I ever want to do that, just, we don't do that often, but it's great whenever holidays come around and I'm like, oh, I have some things I want instead of getting me a gift card. If you don't like to do that, then you can buy this instead. And for me though, it has been so incredible because I have two children and they are complete opposite. One of them is a spender and one of them is a saver. And it has really helped my son who likes to spend money learn that control. It really has. And then I also taught him, I don't know if this is going to come back to bite me. I taught him how to click save for later on Amazon. (laughs) (laughs) So he'll add something to the cart and he'll click save for later. And he'll find like these crazy expensive things, but it closes the mental loop and it does what it needs to do. There's not the obsession and the focus and the, the ruminating on the thing I want, but I can't have. That's smart. My husband and I were very cutthroat. We, from the very beginning, said no presents. Oh, my god! So, gosh. anniversary, birthday, Christmas, it does not matter. We do not give each other really? presents. Really? Yep. So, we don't do presents as much as we do experiences. Yeah, so my, we'll do experiences. Yes. So, my husband's a big sports person. So, every year for his birthday, he gets tickets to a football game. Like, that. that's always easy to do and fun. I know you have two kids. What— parent-specific tips do you have when it comes to money? Oh, my goodness. So let them in on it. Now, this is something that growing up, I don't know how you grew up, but like you don't talk about money and it's very taboo. We don't talk about, don't ask what someone makes. Like that is so rude. And for us, we let our kids in on the conversation around money. Now, obviously, we have a healthy conversation. So I do want to preface this with, if it's an unhealthy conversation about money, we would not have our kids be a part of it. And how would you define healthy versus unhealthy? Healthy, I would say, is is not even like, you can disagree in a healthy and respectful way. Healthy for us looks like not pointing fingers, no name calling, no ultimatums. If you buy this, then I'm not going to do that. None of that. It's more like dealing with facts. Healthy to me is here's how much money we have. Here are our expenses. What are the facts? 
unhealthy, I think, is whenever the emotions are really high, words are being said that are unnecessary and will need to be apologized for later, blaming. So our kids, they see and we model healthy conversations around money to the point where they see us every week on Sunday, we have a little budget meeting at our dinner table, literally talk about it in front of them. And it allows us to have conversations where if we do have a medical bill and or an unexpected vet bill, those are, we get those a lot. We have an unexpected vet bill that comes in and money is more tight. We can say to our kids, if they want to go out to dinner, if they're saying, no, we want to go here instead of eat what you're making. I can just say, hey, Harry Potter, our dog, had... <laughs> had an unexpected vet bill. We don't get paid until this day. We're really going to eat at home because we have food here and we want to just make sure that we're being wise with our money. We're able to have those conversations. We're able to say, if they want something, we don't buy it right away. Sometimes I'll say, well, you can spend your own money on that. Or maybe we'll see if we can add it to the budget next month. We're modeling that positive talk around money. And I think it's, helped make a difference. Maybe not because my son loves to spend money, but we're working. <laughs> we're working on it. So our kids, I have an 11-year-old and a 9-year-old. They also have their own debit card. They don't keep it on them or anything. And they have, they get money every week for doing certain chores. They can earn more money by doing extra chores. And their money immediately gets separated into a savings account, a percentage of it goes into savings, a spend account, and a give account. And so we do that as well. And um, it's just all automated. And it's it's really allowing them to learn about it. Even the act of getting their debit card and typing in on Amazon or learning about tax whenever an item is listed and they're like, wait a minute, it says $19.99, but I'm having to pay yeah, 2074 or whatever. It's like, oh, well, this is how much it really is. So having them involved and not making it this taboo thing and intentionally giving them experiences to spend and save on their own. That's what we're doing. Given that you're a money expert, what else do you think that you're doing differently to raise your kids? talking about investing a lot sooner, talking about investing. It's very foreign to them. They don't really, they don't really, you know, it's very hard to explain to an adult, much less a child, but just explaining about investing. Another thing that we are doing is having conversations with them about our investing. So for instance, if we live in an area and let's say that during the holidays, you know, kids go back to school and they talk about, oh, so-and-so got a, you know, Johnny got a new PlayStation for Christmas. Why didn't I get a PlayStation? And it's a clear financial difference, right? Or fi and financially speaking, the amount my children got versus someone else's child, you're going to have that no matter how much money you make or how little money you make. You're going to have that comparison. So we talk openly about that and we say, okay, well, these people might be spending all of this money here, doing all of these things on that. I said, but we are saving money for your college. We are putting away this much money for your college and we're putting away money for our retirement. And here's why. And we've had the conversation with them about how so many people, their parents rely on them because there was so little education around investing. And now 
you and I and people in our age range are there having to take care of them and teach them and hold their hand and be a support. And I explain how we are so lucky, number one, that mom and dad have jobs. And number two, that we have the information and the knowledge that we don't want that to be something they have to do. And so then, you know, we have these really long, boring conversations with our kids, and then they don't want to, <laughs> they're like, okay, that's enough. We get it. <laughs> so we just talk openly about that and about the future a lot. That's so interesting. When I have kids, I'm going to re-listen to this episode yes, and think about it. please do. At what age did you start doing that? Probably about, in terms of that, whenever they started really comparing. So I would say fourth grade when my oldest son, probably about two years ago, because my youngest son right now, like last year, he asked for a stuffed animal for Christmas. Like there's not that comparison at that age sometimes. And so when we started reaching that, that's when instead of just saying, no, we don't have the money for it, or no, we do this instead. I try to explain the why behind it, because I know he might not understand it fully now, but I might have to explain the why behind it 15 more times before he leaves my house. And so maybe by time number 12, when he hears it, right, it clicks. And he can say, oh, maybe this is something I should do for my future too. I had a neurologist that I was speaking to that was saying when in the adolescent age this comparison kicks in, mm -hmm. that's when unhappiness increases. And when you think about our bad money habits, a lot of those stem from comparison, why does Jenny have a bigger house than me? Why does so-and-so make more than me? Mm -hmm. And it's funny that your son, the younger one, doesn't have that in him yet. No, it's fascinating because I can see the contentment, right? We were all content at one time until we realized that we didn't have to be. And so he lives life in the moment. He is present. He is content he doesn't compare. And it's really sad because I know it's not going to be like that forever. But that's life. And so what can I do when we do hit that moment, right? And it feels like some of that childhood is gone. What do I do to help realize, okay, well, now we have to internally start having conversations and, and externally, right? We need to have them together to help deal with those emotions because otherwise they settle and they settle. And then you do things like spend money, to deal with your emotions. Mm -hmm. So it all comes back full circle. <laughs> <laughs> when you were budgeting, was it just a matter of, let's take our current income and figure out how to save more of it? Or did you ever think, let's figure out how to supplement our income and make more money? Was the other side of the equation ever present for you guys? It really wasn't when we were paying off debt. It was, it was to an extent. So for instance, in terms of like doing little side hustles here and there, we were teachers. We had a set salary schedule, which means that however many years you were teaching, this is what you got. You can look it up across the entire state of Texas, how much every single teacher is making. You cannot negotiate in a public school like that. You can get a master's and go into administration and be a principal or work at a different level and negotiate or have a higher salary. But for us, that's neither of us wanted to do that. So for us, we started doing little hobbies. Like I took my hobby of photography and I would take pictures for my friends of their babies and they would pay me $50 here and there. My husband was a band director and they told him, you need to start driving the bus, the school bus for these band trips, these tournaments. And 
he got paid $50 every single time. So he's like, okay, I'll always offer to drive the bus because I have to be on it anyway. And I might as well get paid $50. And we were able to take some of that money and very slowly pay off debt. Our biggest one, oh, Erica, you're going to love this story. Our biggest one was when my husband transferred from one school district to a different one to take a $10,000 raise. Same exact position, just a school district that was paying more. And I was still at the old school district at the time. I was eight and a half months pregnant. So I couldn't leave. I was going to stay in that district. And I was on a committee in the summertime helping develop, I don't know, some sort of curriculum. And the superintendent was sitting next to me. And in a break, he turns to me and he says, Allison, I don't like that Matt is leaving. What can we do to make him stay? And I said, honestly? He said, yes, what can we do? We don't want to lose him. What can we do to make him stay? I said, pay him more. He said, I can't do that. I said, well, that payment, him making more, allows us to put this child in daycare. And I was like pregnant. I said, so if you can't do that, he's not going to come back. It wasn't a matter of, it was a matter of taking care of our family. It's a matter of doing what's best for you. We can't go back just because the superintendent says that he values Matt. Well, then show it. Mm -hmm. Show it in the way that we needed it most, in the way that all teachers need it most. So many professions. And a lot of times that's what you have to do. If the current employer is not going to be able to pay you what you're worth, pay you enough where you can put your kids in daycare, yeah. you need to move. You need to find somewhere that is able to do that for exactly. you, right? Even if you like your coworkers, even if you have a good boss, even, even if, if comfortable. all the, even if it's comfortable. And that's the thing is it's scary. It's change, right? Any of these things can be scary and change. doesn't mean that it's bad. It, it doesn't mean it's easy, but it doesn't mean it's bad. And what was so wonderful is there were so many things waiting for us in this new school district that we didn't even know about. Friendships, relationships, a town that we moved to that we loved. And it's just being willing to take that step, which is hard for so many people because we see our parents that stay in the same place because that's the way it was done. They stayed at the same company, the same job. You got your pension. You had your big retirement party. And so... It, I don't know, that that moment was solidified in me that I couldn't stay in a job where they valued me so much, they valued my husband so much, but their value only came through words. So I imagine that $10,000 raise is a significant bump compared to what he was making. And I mapped it out where... If you are staying in the same job, getting a 3% raise every year for 20 years versus if you switch jobs every three years and each time get a 10 to 15% raise, you're making twice as much at the end of the 20 years. Isn't it crazy? We just get comfortable. And it's okay to be comfortable. It is. If you're really happy and you like where you are and it pays you well and it pays you a competitive salary, by all means, stay. But for us, we weren't comfortable. We were very uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah. You so. need to be getting compensated, getting raises, mm -hmm. or you need to be out to find people who will pay you properly. Exactly. So that's what we did. And I think I'm sure, I'm not a parent yet, but I can imagine it's different when you have a baby that is relying on you 
it empowers you even more to make those tough decisions like, hey, I'm going to leave this job unless you compensate me properly because it's a human being that's counting on you. Exactly. Your decisions hold a little bit more weight, right? And it's not just about you anymore or your partner. It's someone else. And honestly, if I'm being truthful, that is the reason why we started our debt-free journey. That is the reason why we started budgeting was because we had this baby coming in and he was our catalyst. I call it a catalyst for change. He was the catalyst that totally threw our world upside down and caused us to stop and reevaluate. We didn't have to change everything, but even just stopping and reevaluating can be so powerful because it allows you to just step back and look at your life through a different lens. And when we were able to do that, it allowed us to make decisions that we wouldn't have been comfortable doing before, ask for things that we wouldn't have asked for before, and prioritize things that we never were before. What is the risk of not wanting to face your money? You're going to have to face it eventually. It's not about if. It's not about if you're ever going to do it. It's about when. And so for me, thinking about it is just rip the Band-Aid off. Just get it over with and face how much debt you have, how much money you have invested and save for retirement, and how much money you have in your checking and savings accounts. Look at it. And remember that that number, those numbers, do not define you. They don't have this power over you, but you use those numbers and you decide what you want to do with those numbers to live a life you love and a life you value and you want. And if you are happy in your current situation, by all means, stay there in those numbers. That's okay. But it's all about just moving a step closer to what you really want in life instead of what everyone is telling us that we want. So if people are listening to this, they're saying, I'm inspired to make that change. What are three steps you want them to take? I want you to open up your checking account. I want you to write all your numbers down. Then I want you to get a post-it note and I want you to write down three things that you want to do in the future. Three things that maybe they cost a lot of money. Maybe they're just like these, three things that you're like, I've always wanted to do this or this seems really cool. And I want you to just have those in your mind so that way you can see something that you're working toward. Something that's forward thinking instead of looking in the past. And then I want you to create a plan. I don't want you to go overboard. We don't need like you thinking about your money and working on your money 24-7. That's not that's not healthy either. But I want you to create a plan. Whether your first step is to figure out how to write a budget, and that will take time. That's okay. It will take, it will take time and steps and failures and trying again. Or if you say, you know what, I want to really focus on just getting a debt payoff plan in place, creating that debt payoff plan. You don't even need to do both. Choose one. Choose one and learn about it and commit to doing one thing different. Because when you're willing to do that, you're going to start seeing, oh my gosh, if I can make more progress on my debt payoff plan if I implement this budget. Or, oh my gosh, I'm running my budget and I have more money than I thought. I could probably pay off that credit card. It opens your eyes to things that you didn't even realize were there or like always there, but you weren't even aware of. And in your book, Money Made Easy, you talk about the root of impulse spending, right? Yes. I think that so often people are spending money 
to deal with an emotion or a feeling, comparison, or to numb even. And it's so easy to say, just stop spending money. Just remove your credit card from Amazon. Like, take that one extra step. But sometimes I'm like, that's not going to stop me. (laughs) So whenever we get down to the root, why do I want to spend money? What are the feelings I am feeling right now that I'm trying to avoid or that I'm trying to amplify? Then we can choose other habits instead of spending money. So that way we're not using money as this this Band-Aid, this consequence. And and I don't know about you, Erica, but if I have something that I really want impulsively, just removing my credit card information from Amazon is not going to stop me. I will get up off the sofa and go get my credit card out and type the numbers in. So if I can deal with my emotions instead and what's really behind there, then I can stop impulse spending in its tracks. So we have a closing tradition. The podcast is called Erica Taught Me, but really today is all about Allison Taught Me. So what do you want people to walk away saying, Allison taught me this? I want them saying that Allison taught me that budgets don't have to be a punishment. They can be fun and give me freedom. Love this. Thank you so much. Thank you. If you've enjoyed the episode, please take a moment to leave a review. It really helps support what we're doing. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you next Tuesday on a brand new episode of Erica Taught Me.